0: Okay, if you would please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. (coughs) Luke chapter 21. I'll be reading Luke 21, verses 1 through 4. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And He saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Father, my prayer is that each and every soul in here would see ourselves along with your disciples whom according to Mark you pulled aside to teach this lesson and we'd listen and we'd hear and we'd hear your heart and we'd hear the gospel and we'd hear the joy of overflowing love and appreciation for all that you give us to the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. I doubt whether any person in this room has ever come close to giving what this widow gave to God out of her love for God. You know, when we say stuff like, because it's come down for 2,000 years, this woman's story, you know, I give the widow's mite, the old English there. When we say that, we don't have a clue what this text is about. The text is that she gave all she had. I'm going to begin the sermon by an extensive quote from Randy Alcorn from his book Money, Possessions, Eternity. I think there's at least two more on the book table if you don't have one. An excellent book on finances. How you handle them before God. But at the beginning of the book he writes play the role of financial counselor. Today you have two appointments. First with an elderly woman, and then a middle-aged man... Pause. I'm going to edit out the middle-aged man part just for time's sake in this sermon. Okay. He goes on. The woman's husband died six years ago. She says, I'm down to my last two dollars. I have no money. The cupboards are bare. These two dollars are all I have to live on. Yet." I feel as if God wants me to put them in the offering. What do you think? What would you tell her? Likely, you'd say something like this, that's very generous of you, dear, but God gave you common sense. He knows your heart that you want to give, but He wants you to take care of yourself. He knows you need to eat. I'm sure God would Have you keep those two dollars and buy food for tomorrow? He wants your needs to be met. You can't expect Him just to send down food from heaven if you give up the little money He's provided, can you? God wants us to do the sensible thing. Doesn't our advice to this poor widow seem reasonable? But what would God say? We need not speculate. Scripture tells us exactly what He says. In Luke 21, we meet a poor widow. She put two tiny copper coins in the temple offering box. This was the only money she had. Jesus called His disciples together to teach them a lesson. Did He question the woman's wisdom? Did He say she should have been more sensible than to surrender her only remaining resources? No. He gave her an unqualified commendation. I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she... Out of her poverty put in everything, all she had to live on. Jesus regarded the woman as wise. He set her up as a model for his disciples to follow. He enshrined her example in the Word of God so that future generations might emulate her faith in sacrificial giving. And yet If she had come to us for advice, we would have tried to talk her out of doing what Jesus commended her for. By our standards, both outside and inside the church, the widow's actions seem unwise and the rich man's seem wise. But God, who knows the hearts of both and sees from the vantage point of eternity, regards the poor woman as eternally wise and the rich man as eternally foolish, the one who stored up. This shows that our beliefs about money are not only radically different from God's, but diametrically opposed to them." End quote. Look at your text there. Chapter 21, verses 1-4. to It's very short this morning. And this passage is an exegete to look and see what, is he, what does he mean is pretty darn simple and straightforward. And so I'm going to let the New Testament scholar, Daryl Bach, summarize it for us. He writes, Jesus explains why He says the widow gave the most when she only contributed to Lepta. All those who preceded her donated their gifts out of an excess. What they gave to God cost them little. In contrast, the woman gave not from her abundance but from her very life. As Jesus puts it, she gave literally all of her life. It is the Greek word bios where we get biology, life, science. Her poverty means that her contribution cost her in terms of life's basics. But this did not stop her from giving. She did not say, I do not have enough to live on, so I will postpone my giving. In fact, she could have given just one lepton and instead she gave more, she did not give from abundance she gave out of quote what she lacked from her poverty she could have said I'll keep one leapt on to be safe to have a cushion but she did not End quote there's the text what I want to do then with the rest of our time is to slowly let us notice three things from this text. Not just looking back into history at that moment in the temple in AD 33, but looking at this text and how it impacts every one of us in this room. First, we will notice Jesus watches what we give. Secondly, Jesus makes judgments about it or evaluations about our giving. And thirdly, motive in giving is crucial. That is, giving is to be an overflow of joy in God. So let's look at the first. Jesus watches our giving. Look at verses 1 and 2. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. So here's the picture. There are 13 brass, almost trumpet-shaped, real narrow at the top and get really big at the bottom, offering containers that he is looking at. And there's no paper money back then. There's only coins. And so that brass makes noise as very wealthy people come and put their money in, probably in sacks, and then dump it in. And it's like a slot machine. You can just hear it. And the next one, and the next one, and the next one. And then this poor widow, her clothing and everything pointed to her to be, yeah, she's poor. Two slight sounds with the smallest of the coins, the thinnest of the coins, and nobody noticed her except Jesus. And His notice of her on that particular day in A.D. 33 has caused her to be talked about for the last 2,000 years. How much more since later that week Jesus will lay down His life and be killed. He will rise from the dead and as we had seen a couple of weeks ago, He will ascend to the Father and sit at the right hand of God. How much more does He watch what we give? He knows every giver, rich or extremely poor or middle class, People may give anonymously like this widow thought she was doing, in, in other words, in order not to try to be noticed by men. But Jesus knows every dime we earn and how we spend our money and what we give. This is how Mark puts it. and He lets us know a little bit more in his account in Mark 12. And Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins. So, it's clear Jesus looked He saw and He made note of the amounts people gave. Now think about it. You remember, the temple is massive. At this time, it was one-fourth of the entire city of Jerusalem were temple grounds. It cost a lot of money to keep this thing running and functioning. What in the world did this woman's To Lepta. Put it in our day. 75 cents. How was that going to be helpful to the running of the temple? I think the answer is probably wasn't at all. And that means Jesus' point, and you think about it as a good exegete, I don't know how else to conclude this, but his point in this text must be, he's he's watching and he's evaluating and he's measuring. And oh, this is so encouraging to us poor people throughout the generation. That's a joke. We're Americans. But there are really poor people for 2,000 years in countries today. He does not measure our giving based upon how much money you gave and what percentage of that money Paid for the budget of the church or the temple or that mission agency. It's not how he does it. He measured it based on the percentage of her means. Her heart toward God, he says, was much bigger than those who gave a thousand times more Money. There's no evidence in this text that this woman gave because of the manipulative pressure of a TV evangelist with a kooky hairdo. But she gave out of her routine faithfulness. When she went to the temple to worship, she gave as a matter of holy habit. This widow's gift destroys the excuse. Well, we'll give when we get enough money. You know, there's one answer to that just from observing life as a Christian for 32 years. No, you won't. If you have not figured out that as a Christian who is actually saved that your love and your joy in God is the root of your giving when you're poor, you will not give if you make five times as much money later. That's why God's biblical principle of the first fruits of harvest offered off the top is so wise. Whether the person only has one Acre of corn. Or a hundred acres of corn. The principle for their heart towards God remains. Because that first fruits is the heart happily acknowledging it is God who gives me life and breath and skill and mind and labor and a job as opposed to no job or anything else. He owns it all. And it is that routine acknowledgement of our joy in that fact. One pastor commenting on this text writes, Let's be honest. The reason most of us don't give faithfully is not because we don't have the money, it's because we squandered the money the Lord provided on frivolous stuff that we could easily live without. We run up our credit cards to support a lifestyle we can't afford and then say, I can't afford to give. But the truth is, we don't give and we're in debt because we are not managing God's resources carefully in line with His promises. End quote. Jesus watches according to this text. And secondly, He makes judgments about it or evaluations about our giving. Verses 3 and 4. And He said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For, here's His reason, He says it. For, or because... They all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live in. So Jesus evaluates. He's got a scale. Over here on the, your left side, He takes some of these rich guys giving. Okay, this guy put, it's put in our money. He, he, put, in, he put in $1,850 dollars. Or another put in 750 on that side of the scale. And another put in $323 on that side of the scale. And then comes this poor widow. And she put in on the other side of the scale, $0. $0.75. And Jesus said, hers outweighed the other. He explains why He says it. Because they all contributed out of their Abundance, their surplus. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. It seems to be, what were you saying, Jesus? I think he's saying the gifts that, of, the, of the rich that he's looking at, right, at that moment, really didn't cost them anything. They didn't have to go without or to adjust their lifestyles to give large amounts. This widow may have gone hungry that very night because she gave. One thing I love about church history in two thousand years—if you can go back and get out of our century and look at other believers, fellow brothers and sisters, looking at the same Bible and same text—I'm going to go back five hundred years, and there's a pastor in Geneva. This is what he says to his congregation in dealing with this text. His name was John Calvin. The lesson is useful in two ways. And you've got to understand, this is 500 years ago. Europe. Feudal system. There's real poverty. The lesson is useful in two ways. The Lord encourages the poor who appear to lack the means of doing well. He encourages them not to doubt that they testify to their enthusiasm for Him even with a slender contribution. If they consecrate themselves, their offering, which appears menial and trivial, will be no less precious than if they had offered all the treasures of Croesus. On the other hand, those who have a richer supply and stand out for their large giving are told that it is not enough if their generosity... It is not enough if their generosity far exceeds the commoners and the underprivileged. For with God it rates less for a rich man to give a moderate sum from a large mass than for a poor man to exhaust himself in paying out something very small. End quote, John Calvin. Here's the question. seems like Luke is really a long book. We've been in it a long time. But what God has ordained in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to end up in there of Jesus' ministry is really small. And so why is it, first of all, Jesus pulled His disciples aside, which He did according to Mark, to teach them this lesson and made sure it's in Holy Scripture. Why, Jesus? Come on. The answer's simple, because God is after our hearts, and He knows that our hearts are inseparably bound up with our money. You cannot serve God and money. For where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. The size of this woman's heart was measured against what it cost her. Even with the biblical starting point of 10%, someone with an income of 10000 has $9,000 to live on. And someone with an income of a hundred thousand has ninety thousand dollars to live on. But think about it: which one feels the cost more? The first. That's what Jesus is driving at, and it becomes a problem for those of us who want to be serious. C.S. Lewis thought about it, and he offers advice about this, saying, "Quote." I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our giving does not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say it is too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. Third, what we see in the text is the motive for giving is huge and crucial. Giving is to be an overflow of joy in God. Jesus sat there and He watched what amounts people gave. And He evaluated it. And he compared it to what the givers had. And he counted the widows to be much more. How could he do that? Unless he's looking at something that is attached to her giving. Her heart. Her motive. What drove her. Was clearly her love for God that says, I'm giving to the temple. And the others also he watched. And he watched their love for God cause them to give a much smaller percentage. Now, I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians because one of the clearest places, I think, exactly what Jesus is pointing to, he leaves to his apostle Paul to illustrate it, to lay it out. Turn to 2 Corinthians in chapter 8 and 9. Here's the context beginning in chapter 8. Paul has been for at least two years throughout. Region after region, church after church after church in his missionary journeys in the Gentile lands, raising money for the church in Judea where they are really hammered with poverty. This is what he has been doing. And now he's writing to the Corinthians. He wants to make sure that their promised gift and offering, he wants it to be big, he tries to motivate it from biblical principles by using other Christians in the region of Macedonia in their churches where their giving was huge. And so he says, be like them. This is what he does now. Watch. Start with verse 1, chapter 8 of Second Corinthians. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in the wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us, earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints and this not as we had expected but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us so here's Paul he's doing this to motivate the Corinthians to give he's saying to the Corinthians don't Just give away your hard-earned money. Don't just fork it over. He's saying, bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit of joy in doing so. See, this is listen to the progression of Paul. I just want you to see it in verse one. Notice there, he says this whole giving is the power of God's grace working. Watch. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Okay, now, the experience of the grace of God caused the Macedonians, according to Paul, to be filled with an abundance of joy. And notice their joy was not because God had made them materially rich. They were actually very poor. Verse 2, see it? For, he's explaining the grace of God working in them now, for in a severe test of affliction, there abundance of joy. And, okay, that's a, that's a conjunction. Okay, you can hook two cars on a train up together. This and that come together, and they're going to produce a third thing. He says, their abundance of joy hooked together with the reality that they are in deep poverty. What does he say? It overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So their joy, he's saying, was not in things, but in God, like the poor widow. And thirdly, their abundant joy overflowed in big giving. For Look at verse 3. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord. The motive in the text is being filled vertically with a joy in God. And look what Paul says it produced in verse 4. They were begging us earnestly. Please, Paul, let us give. We, we see brothers and sisters hurting in Judea. Please don't leave us out. That's what he said, the grace of God producing joy produced in them. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the same. In other words, the flow is clear. The more they drew near to God, their desire to give grew. They begged us. They want to give big out of their extreme poverty. Now, And they did. And here's the reality. Their giving from their... Poverty in their context in this offering where they found so much joy would and did cause the Macedonians to deny themselves a number of really nice meals, nicer clothing, better and more expensive entertainment that they could have had if they would have held on to their money that they gave. Their desire... To give, overwhelm their desires for the fleeting pleasures of the things that that money that they gave could have bought if they held on to it. That's what God is after. In Second Corinthians, it's what He's after and what Jesus says to us about the widow. Look, this widow gave more. Her heart for God was much bigger. Now, jump down a few paragraphs in 2 Corinthians. Because now he continues in chapter 9, Paul continues to motivate their giving. Look at verse 5, chapter 9. Paul writes, I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of him, Paul, to get to the Corinthians, to you and to arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. Now, that word exaction, it's the word for covetousness. He means so that when we get there, I don't have to deal with this. It'll be ready. Your hearts will be filled with joy. It'll be a willing gift, and it won't be a gift coming from greediness on your part. That's what he says. And in verse 6, look at the next verse. The point is this: whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will will also reap bountifully. So Paul tells them, don't sow your money into this offering sparingly. Give bountifully like the poor widow. The next verse, 7. Each one, each person, Corinthians, must give as he has decided in his heart not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. So He just says, do not give begrudgingly, reluctantly. Give freely. Give cheerfully. So in this text, Paul clearly told us how not to give. Don't give greedily. what exaction in this text. but Don't give covetously. Don't give sparingly. Don't give reluctantly. Don't give under compulsion. Pressured from the outside and it's not in your heart. But He said, on the other hand, No, give willingly, cheerfully, bountifully. So, clearly there is such a thing as bad giving. Wrong-hearted, wrong motive giving. And we see in our text, Jesus saw them give and He made evaluations about their giving. And the words that Paul uses here in chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians about how not to give, they all have to do with a desire to hold back. To give sparingly is to give from a heart that deep down wants to hold back what it's giving. If you say, hey, please spare my life. What do you mean? We mean, let me keep my life. There are enough external pressures in this world, especially for Christians to give. The homeless street, another opportunity of feeding really poverty stricken children and a third world country. My church won't stay in existence if it can't pay its bills. But there's a way to do that giving in a way Paul says don't do it. There's a way to, yeah, okay, i got enough pressure to give when the real feeling deep down inside is how much can I keep? As opposed to how much can I give? That's what Paul means by Sparingly, reluctantly under compulsion. Let each decide in his own heart. Now here's the danger, isn't it? Hmm, okay. Um, my heart says that I'm in hearing a sermon like this. Here's the question. Would it really be a comfort for a true Christian to say, Well, I heard what Paul said here. Don't give reluctantly. Don't give grudgingly. I want to do that. Okay. At least I'm not a hypocrite who gives with wrong motives. I don't give reluctantly or begrudgingly because my heart is not overflowing with joy in God to give freely. Therefore, I'm consistent. I don't give anything. I'm true to my heart. I'm true to how much I love God and His salvation. I'm true to the joy that I have over His ownership of everything that He provides. For me, I have none of that. Would a true Christian want to stay there or would they want to heed Paul's admonition? encouragement to change their heart. Now the positive side here in 2 Corinthians of Christians giving, as Paul says, give bountifully. Bountiful giving starts with your relationship with God. It starts with realizing what eternal salvation in Jesus Christ is. Do you know what you deserve? Do you know what He did? Do you know what He is constantly doing in your union with Jesus right now? It starts with the understanding of I belong to a bountiful God who is rich with eternal mercy. Let me experience more of You And overflowing with my means, my time, my money, my giftings to meet the needs of others. Let me overflow with this gospel spreading through the world. That's why Paul says in verse 7, For God loves a cheerful giver. John Piper, I'm going to give an extended quote here. He just, all that I'm trying to say here, he just totally nails it straightforwardly. Quote The sparing heart has a relationship to God that feels him as a taker rather than a giver. If my life is being drained away by God because he is so incessantly and solely demanding, that I feel like grasping after the things of the world to meet my needs. If every time I look up, I see the pointing finger of God demanding, give me, give me, give me, how can I look back down at the needs of the world and say, take me, I will gladly spend and be spent for your good. Oh, this person will give something because one of the draining demands that he hears when he looks to this ever demanding, ever taking God is, give something to the church. So out comes the gift. Draining, life depleting, exhausting, sparing. Gift. But what a difference between this gift and the gift that flows from the heart that has a relationship with God that feels Him as a giver rather than a taker. A heart that looks up to God and sees a giver, a supplier, a helper. When this person looks to God, He feels replenished, not drained. What makes the difference then between the sparing giver and the bountiful giver is their relationship to God. For one, He is an incessantly demanding, draining taker. For the other, he is an inexhaustible giver. Quote. When it comes to all of our giving sitting in this room, there is no advantage to the poor or to the rich or to anywhere in between. We are all on an equal playing field. Jesus said, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. The questions that this text puts before us are. How do we give? Do we give reluctantly, begrudgingly? Or do we give joyfully? Does our giving cost us anything? What will the judgment reveal? What is our attitude when no one else is watching when it comes to giving, God is not needy. He doesn't need a dime. He clearly did not need the two lepta from this poor widow. The whole point is God wants us. And we cannot give ourselves to Him apart from our money. So you're thinking logically. You can give all kinds of money and be absolutely apart from God. But ultimately, there's a lot that God wants of our life. But you can't do it apart from your money. It's true that money speaks. Money buys things. It speaks loudly in this world. And it is true according to Jesus that money speaks. They're people. They're buried. They have nice food after they're gone. And many godless people leave behind huge estates of houses, boats, toys, expensive paintings. Who's going to get it? Where's it going to go? And all of that stuff as they lay in a coffin testifies Their money speaks. It testifies to what they worshipped down here. Jesus said, You fool, this night your soul will be demanded of you. And then whose will all this stuff be? What does our giving speak about us. Unlike many of the Pharisees, rich scribes, this poor widow never gave to impress people. She didn't know Jesus was watching her, but she did know God was watching her. And maybe to this very day, that widow, because I don't know, because resurrection hasn't happened yet, so I know how God works it out, but maybe to this very day, she still does not have a clue of what she did that day where those two lepta have impacted the world for the last 2,000 years. But the final judgment where the evidences of saving faith will be laid out and eternal rewards Bestowed, then this widow will for sure see that she that day gave more than all those rich religious leaders because her heart for God and his salvation was much bigger. Let's pray. Father, we, and I hope I'm joined in prayer by every heart here, deeply desire that the intended meaning of Jesus' teaching in this text be grabbed hold of, be felt, be embraced, and be joyfully lived out. An absolute impossibility for a person who has not been born again. But very probable for all of us who by Your Spirit have been grabbed hold of and placed in union with Your Son forever. May we spend and be spent on behalf of the Gospel, on behalf of meeting the needs of others. May our joy in You overflow day by day, week by week, month by month, and year by year. Not only how we use our time, not only how we use our talents, but how we use the resources You have sowed mercifully provided